United States. In the United States, variances in the insanity defense between states, and in the federal court system, are attributable to differences with respect to three key issues. Availability, whether the jurisdiction allows a defendant to raise the insanity defense. Definition, when the defense is available, what facts will support a finding of insanity, and burden of proof, whether the defendant has the duty of proving insanity or the prosecutor has the duty of disproving insanity, and by what standard of proof. In Butcher v. Louisiana, 1992, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that a person could not be held indefinitely for psychiatric treatment following a finding of not guilty by reason of insanity. Availability. In the United States, a criminal defendant may plead insanity in federal court, and in the state courts of every state except for Idaho, Kansas, Montana, and Utah. However, defendants in states that disallow the insanity defense may still be able to demonstrate that a defendant was not capable of forming intent to commit a crime as a result of mental illness. In Collar v. Kansas, 2020, the U.S. Supreme Court held, in a 6-3 ruling, that a state does not violate the due process clause by abolishing an insanity defense based on a defendant's incapacity to distinguish right from wrong. The court emphasized that state governments have broad discretion to choose laws defining the precise relationship between criminal culpability and mental illness. Definition Each state and the federal court system currently uses one of the following tests to define insanity for purposes of the insanity defense. Over its decades of use the definition of insanity has been modified by statute, with changes to the availability of the insanity defense, what constitutes legal insanity, whether the prosecutor or defendant has the burden of proof, the standard of proof required at trial, trial procedures, and a commitment and release procedures for defendants who had been acquitted based on a finding of insanity. Mitten Test The guidelines for the Mitten Rules, state, among other things, and evaluating the criminal responsibility for defendants claiming to be insane were settled in the British courts in the case of Daniel Mitten in 1843. Mitten was a Scottish woodcutter who killed the secretary to the prime minister, Edward Drummond, in a botched attempt to assassinate the Prime Minister himself. Mitten apparently believed that the Prime Minister was the architect of the myriad of personal and financial misfortunes that had befallen him. During his trial, nine witnesses testified to the fact that he was insane, and the jury acquitted him, finding him not guilty by reason of insanity. The House of Lords asked the judges of the common law courts to answer five questions on insanity as a criminal defense, and the formulation that emerged from their review, that a defendant should not be held responsible for their actions only if, as a result of their mental disease or defect, they, 1, did not know that their act would be wrong, or, 2, did not understand the nature and quality of their actions, became the basis of the law governing legal responsibility in cases of insanity in England. Under the rules, loss of control because of mental illness was no defense. The Mitten Rule was embraced with almost no modification by American courts and legislatures for more than 100 years, until the mid-20th century. Durham and New Hampshire Test The strict Mitten standard for the insanity defense was widely used until the 1950s and the Durham case of Durham v. United States case. In the Durham case, the court ruled that a defendant is entitled to acquittal if the crime was the product of their mental illness, for example, crime would not have been committed but for the disease. The test, also called the product test, is broader than either the mitten test or the irresistible impulse test. The test has more lenient guidelines for the insanity defense, but it addressed the issue of convicting mentally ill defendants, which was allowed under the mitten rule. 
However, the Durham Standard drew much criticism because of its expansive definition of legal insanity. Model Penal Code Test The Model Penal Code, published by the American Law Institute, provides a standard for legal insanity that serves as a compromise between the strict Newton rule, the lenient Durham ruling, and the irresistible impulse test. Under the MPC standard, which represents the modern trend, a defendant is not responsible for criminal conduct if at the time of such conduct as a result of mental disease or defect he lacks substantial capacity either to appreciate the criminality of their conduct or to conform their conduct to the requirements of the law. The test thus takes into account both the cognitive and volitional capacity of insanity. Federal Courts After the perpetrator of President Reagan's assassination attempt was found not guilty by reason of insanity, Congress passed the Insanity Defense Reform Act of 1984. Under this act, the burden of proof was shifted from the prosecution to the defense and the standard of evidence in federal trials was increased from a preponderance of evidence to clear and convincing evidence. The LE test was discarded in favor of a new test that more closely resembled Mitten's. Under this new test only perpetrators suffering from severe mental illnesses at the time of the crime could successfully employ the insanity defense. The defendant's ability to control himself or herself was no longer a consideration. The act also curbed the scope of expert psychiatric testimony and adopted stricter procedures regarding the hospitalization and release of those found not guilty by reason of insanity. Those acquitted of a federal offense by reason of insanity have not been able to challenge their psychiatric confinement through a writ of habeas corpus or other remedies. In Archuleta v. Hedrick, 2004, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit the court ruled persons found not guilty by reason of insanity and later want to challenge their confinement may not attack their initial successful insanity defense. The appellate court affirmed the lower court's judgment, having thus elected to make himself a member of that exceptional class of persons who seek verdicts of not guilty by reason of insanity, he cannot now be heard to complain of the statutory consequences of his election. The court held that no direct attack upon the final judgment of acquittal by reason of insanity was possible. It also held that the collateral attack that he was not informed that a possible alternative to his commitment was to ask for a new trial was not a meaningful alternative. Guilty but mentally ill? As an alternative to the insanity defense, some jurisdictions permit a defendant to plead guilty but mentally ill. A defendant who is found guilty but mentally ill may be sentenced to mental health treatment, at the conclusion of which the defendant will serve the remainder of their sentence in the same manner as any other defendant. Burden of Proof In a majority of states, the burden of proving insanity is placed on the defendant, who must prove insanity by a preponderance of the evidence. In a minority of states, the burden is placed on the prosecution, who must prove sanity beyond reasonable doubt. In federal court the burden is placed on the defendant, who must prove insanity by clear and convincing evidence. Controversy the insanity plea is used in the U.S. criminal justice system in less than 1% of all criminal cases. Little is known about the criminal justice system and the mentally ill. There is no definitive study regarding the percentage of people with mental illness who come into contact with police, appear as criminal defendants, are incarcerated, or are under community supervision. Furthermore, the scope of this issue varies across jurisdictions. Accordingly, Advocates should rely as much as possible on statistics collected by local and state government agencies. Some U.S. states have begun to ban the use of the insanity defense, and in 1994 the Supreme Court denied a petition of certiorari seeking review of a Montana Supreme Court case that upheld Montana's abolition of the defense. Idaho, Kansas, and Utah have also banned the defense. 
However, a mentally ill defendant or patient can be found unfit to stand trial in these states. In 2001, the Nevada Supreme Court found that their state's abolition of the defense was unconstitutional as a violation of federal due process. In 2006, the Supreme Court decided Clark v. Arizona upholding Arizona's limitations on the insanity defense. In that same ruling, the court noted we have never held that the Constitution mandates an insanity defense, nor have we held that the Constitution does not so require. In 2020, the Supreme Court decided Collar v. Kansas upholding Kansas' abolition of the insanity defense, stating that the Constitution does not require Kansas to adopt an insanity test that turns on a defendant's ability to recognize that their crime was morally wrong. The insanity defense is also complicated because of the underlying differences in philosophy between psychiatrists or psychologists and legal professionals. In the United States, a psychiatrist, psychologist or other mental health professional is often consulted as an expert witness in insanity cases, but the ultimate legal judgment of the defendant's sanity is determined by a jury, not by a mental health professional. In other words, Mental health professionals provide testimony and professional opinion but are not ultimately responsible for answering legal questions. Canada. Criminal Code Provisions. The defense of mental disorder is codified in Section 16 of the Criminal Code which states, in part. 16. 1. No person is criminally responsible for an act committed or an omission made while suffering from a mental disorder that rendered the person incapable of appreciating the nature and quality of the act or omission or of knowing that it was wrong. To establish a claim of mental disorder the party raising the issue must show on a balance of probabilities first that the person who committed the act was suffering from a disease of the mind, and second, that at the time of the offense they were either 1. unable to appreciate the nature and quality of the act, or 2 did not know it was wrong. The meaning of the word wrong was determined in the Supreme Court case of R. V. Chalk, which held that wrong was not restricted to legally wrong but to morally wrong as well. Post-verdict conditions. The current legislative scheme was created by the Parliament of Canada after the previous scheme was found unconstitutional by the Supreme Court of Canada in R. V. Swain. The new provisions also replace the old insanity defense with the current mental disorder defense. Once a person is found not criminally responsible, NCR, they will have a hearing by a review board within 45 days, 90 days if the court extends the delay. A review board is established under Part 20.1 of the Criminal Code and is composed of at least three members, a person who is a judge or eligible to be a judge, a psychiatrist and another expert in a relevant field, such as social work, criminology or psychology. Parties at a review board hearing are usually the accused, the Crown and the hospital responsible for the supervision or assessment of the accused. A review board is responsible for both accused persons found NCR or accused persons found unfit to stand trial on account of mental disorder. A review board dealing with an NCR offender must consider two questions, whether the accused is a significant threat to the safety of the public and, if so, what the least onerous and least restrictive restrictions on the liberty of the accused should be in order to mitigate such a threat. Proceedings before a review board are inquisitorial rather than adversarial. Often the review board will be active in conducting an inquiry. Where the review board is unable to conclude that the accused is a significant threat to the safety of the public, the review board must grant the accused an absolute discharge, an order essentially terminating the jurisdiction of the criminal law over the accused. Otherwise, the review board must order that the accused be either discharged subject to conditions or detained in a hospital, both subject to conditions. 
the conditions imposed must be the least onerous and least restrictive necessary to mitigate any danger the accused may pose to others. Since the Review Board is empowered under criminal law powers under Section 9127 of the Constitution Act, 1867 the sole justification for its jurisdiction is public safety. Therefore, the nature of the inquiry is the danger the accused may pose to public safety rather than whether the accused is cured. For instance, many sick accused persons are discharged absolutely on the basis that they are not a danger to the public while many sane accused are detained on the basis that they are dangerous. Moreover, the notion of significant threat to the safety of the public is a criminal threat. This means that the review board must find that the threat posed by the accused is of a criminal nature. While proceedings before a review board are less formal than in court, there are many procedural safeguards available to the accused given the potential indefinite nature of Part 20.1. Any party may appeal against the decision of a review board. In 1992 when the new mental disorder provisions were enacted, Parliament included capping provisions which were to be enacted at a later date. These capping provisions limited the jurisdiction of a review board over an accused based on the maximum potential sentence had the accused been convicted, for example there would be a cap of five years if the maximum penalty for the index offense is five years. However, these provisions were never proclaimed into force and were subsequently repealed. A review board must hold a hearing every 12 months, unless extended to 24 months, until the accused is discharged absolutely. Accused unfit to stand trial. The issue of mental disorder may also come into play before a trial even begins if the accused's mental state prevents the accused from being able to appreciate the nature of a trial and to conduct a defense. An accused who is found to be unfit to stand trial is subject to the jurisdiction of a review board. While the considerations are essentially the same, there are a few provisions which apply only to unfit defendants. A review board must determine whether the accused is fit to stand trial. Regardless of the determination, the review board must then determine what conditions should be imposed on the accused, considering both the protection of the public and the maintenance of the fitness of the accused, or conditions which would render the accused fit. Previously an absolute discharge was unavailable to an unfit accused. However, in R.V. Demers, the Supreme Court of Canada struck down the provision restricting the availability of an absolute discharge to an accused person who is deemed both permanently unfit and not a significant threat to the safety of the public. Presently a review board may recommend a judicial stay of proceedings in the event that it finds the accused both permanently unfit and non-dangerous. The decision is left to the court having jurisdiction over the accused. An additional requirement for an unfit accused is the holding of a prima facie case hearing every two years. The Crown must demonstrate to the court having jurisdiction over the accused that it still has sufficient evidence to try the accused. If the Crown fails to meet this burden then the accused is discharged and proceedings are terminated. The nature of the hearing is virtually identical to that of a preliminary hearing. United Kingdom Although use of the insanity defense is rare, since the criminal procedure, insanity and unfitness to plead, Act 1991, insanity pleas have steadily increased in the UK. Scotland the Scottish Law Commission, in its discussion paper number 122 on Insanity and Diminished Responsibility, 2003, confirms that the law has not substantially changed from the position stated in Hume's commentaries. We may next attend to the case of those unfortunate persons, who have pleaded the miserable defense of idiocy or insanity. Which condition, if it is not an assumed or imperfect, but a genuine and thorough insanity, and is proved by the testimony of intelligent witnesses, makes the act like that of an infant, 
and equally bestows the privilege of an entire exemption from any manner of pain, cum alterum innocentia concilia tutor, alterum body infelicitas excusat. I say, where the insanity is absolute, and is duly proved, for if reason and humanity enforce the plea in these circumstances, it is no less necessary to observe a caution and reserve in applying the law, as shall hinder it from being understood, that there is any privilege in a case of mere weakness of intellect, or a strange and moody humor, or a crazy and capricious or irritable temper. In none of these situations does or can the law excuse the offender. Because such constitutions are not exclusive of a competent understanding of the true state of the circumstances in which the deed is done, nor of the subsistence of some steady and evil passion, grounded in those circumstances, and directed to a certain object. To serve the purpose of a defense in law, the disorder must therefore amount to an absolute alienation of reason, a continua mentis alienationi, omni intellectu carate, such a disease as deprives the patient of the knowledge of the true aspect and position of things about them, hinders them from distinguishing friend from foe, and gives them up to the impulse of their own distempered fancy. The phrase absolute alienation of reason is still regarded as at the core of the defense in the modern law, see him advocate v. Kidd, 1960, and Brennan v. Him advocate, 1977.